Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. In this episode of the Swallow Pride podcast, we have Alicia Brooms. She's an acute care SLP who has honed her skills as an SLP generalist. She graduated from Stephen F. Austin State University, where she she received her bachelor's and master's in communication disorders and speech language pathology with a minor in early intervention. She has, within her 17 years of practice, had the opportunity to work in a variety of settings, spanning from SNFs, adult and pediatric outpatient clinics, LTACs, neurorecovery and brain injury centers, and inpatient rehab. Alicia has had the opportunity to practice not just as a clinician, but as an assistant rehab director and then rehab director for a 120-bed SNF overseeing 16-plus therapists and serving as part of the admissions team to accept qualified residents into skilled beds. Currently, Alicia practices at a 420-bed level 2 trauma center and level 3 NICU acute care facility where she balances the acute care influx, outpatient fluoroscopy, the NICU, and assists with their dedicated inpatient rehab when able to. She is the lead SLP serving as the speech department stroke representative and educator for the hospital's comprehensive stroke team. Alicia conducts monthly education with all new hires on dysphagia, which includes teaching how to complete a nursing dysphagia screen and is part of their annual stroke and new hire education. She serves as a step mentor for ASHA and loves to supervise graduate students and clinical fellows. She holds a responsibility for interviewing and training all newly hired SLPs and helps to oversee their growth. She has several certifications in her toolbox, including VitalStim, eStim, MDTP, and recently completed and received mention as a Lingraphica Certified Technology Specialist. I hope you all enjoy this episode. I just loved every minute of chatting with Alicia. She's just a gem and hope you all love this. Welcome to the Swallow Pride Podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. 
just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Alicia. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Yeah, there's so much stuff we're going to cover today. I'm so excited. I was looking at all the topics we could talk about and I was like, okay, I'm sure we could probably talk for a million years, but I'm excited. So let's dive into it. Tell the people a little bit about yourself. So my name is Alicia Brooms. I am currently an acute care speech language pathologist. I graduated from Stephen F. Austin State University with my Bachelor's of Science and my Master's of Science in Speech Language Pathology and Communication Science and Disorders. Um, my program at the time was heavy on PEDS, um, and so I felt really comfortable. I thought I had a good rapport with PEDS, and so I was challenged challenged to tell myself, well, what do I really want to do? Um, I really wanted to dive into the acute world um, or work with adults um, just so that I could start off my career knowing that I would have the benefit of both worlds, if that makes a little bit of sense. Um, So I secured a job at a skilled nursing facility um, a little bit right before I graduated. And um, I loved it. I know a lot of people say they use skilled nursing facilities as a stepping stone. No, um, I love skilled nursing. It's my jam. Yes. Me, me too. At any point, <laughs> I would I would go back to a skilled nursing facility. Um, absolutely adore that. Um, it was a good place for me to start my career. Um, I started off as my CFY, um, got lots of experience there under my supervisor's wings and guidance. Um, but that career grew kind of fast, I guess. And I don't look at it as a bad thing. By my third year there, I became the assistant rehab director. My rehab director knew she was going to be leaving. And so she asked me, how did I feel about kind of advancing a little bit? And so of course, who wouldn't take that opportunity? So I did assistant rehab director my third year. And then into my fourth year, I became the rehab director. Um, I think that's good in hindsight when I look at that, because I got to see not only the clinical world of speech pathology, but I had a, I had, was able to open up my eyes to see how managers look at things, how CEOs look at things, the business side of it, which if you have that opportunity, it helps you better know how to communicate when you're trying to reach out and talk to managers and things. And you get the budget side and the billing side, and you know, it's not just about speech, but as your patient as a whole and how you're making those things better for the patient. Um, Shortly after I did that, though, I was missing the clinical side. The downfall to that was, although I was still a working rehab director where I could carry some patients and see a caseload, um, the workload was a bit much at times. So I didn't get to see a lot of patients and do a lot of patient care. And I really missed that. I thought as a new grad going in, I still needed to grow. I still needed to learn. I needed to see what other um, populations I hadn't seen yet um, in the diagnosis. So I took a step back from that and decided to go back to the clinical side of speech therapy. Um, I believe when I left that facility, I became a contract therapist for Mm -hmm. a couple years. Absolutely adored that because I got to not have my foot in just one building, but I got to go to different settings. So I was able to do skilled nursing facilities. I did rehab facilities. Um, I was able to go to um, uh, brain injury clinics, LTACs, and then, of course, uh, acute care facilities. So that's how I landed the job in an acute care. And I love it. I wouldn't change it, you know, for a thing. I always tell people if I had a second career, it would probably just be stay-at-home mom because I love my kids to death. Um, they're a bit too old for me to do that now, but <laughs> that still would be my option. Yeah. Um, but so so I'm in acute now, um, and I love it. Like I said, I wouldn't change it for for anything in the world. Yeah, I love that. Did you did you always aspire to work in acute care, or did you sort of just land there? 
I did. And here's the yeah. funny thing about it, um, that there's something that you actually say in your intro um, that um, that I hang dearly to. I knew that I wanted to be in acute care because in grad school, it was one of those things where my goal was I'm going to be a hospital based speech language pathologist. Back then, I don't know that I knew why I wanted to do that. It was just, that's what you heard. Like, you want to go yeah. work in a hospital. Yeah. And so I did. I wanted to to just see what that era looked like for me. I thought, I actually thought it probably looked different from what I'm actually doing now, but still in a good way. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I it stuck with me and I'll, this will probably be where I'll be. <laughs> I love that. I love that for you. And, and I think, you know, one thing, this is totally off topic, but I, I always encourage SLPs to try new settings because I think, you know, we, you sometimes just get in this rut or you think this is like the only setting to work in, or, you know, some people work in SNFs and hate SNFs and it's like, well, try someplace new. And, yeah. and I think the beauty of that is like just sometimes changing settings that, that isn't even that drastic can make all the difference in your mental health and career satisfaction. And, and I just, I'm so passionate about this field and I just want to encourage people that if you're not happy somewhere, try something else. It doesn't mean that you hate the field or that you want to leave completely. You, you might, but I just want to say that I think there's so much to be learned by trying other facilities, other companies, other settings. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And that was something I, I did have to tell myself because I hadn't done acute. And yeah. with the contract therapist, they asked me, they said, hey, do you want to go to acute? And before I did that, I was at an LTAC. And so the LTAC world was kind of where I got my feet well, went yeah. and I was able to shadow. And then so then I felt better about making the decision of saying, OK, now we're going to give acute. I know it's fast paced. I know it's hustle bustle. But, you know, I'm, I don't want to just like you said, I don't want to be in a shell and not grow. Yeah. Um, and so I'll just, you know, educate and learn and find someone that'll help me grow. So, yeah. Awesome. I love that. All right. Well, where do we, where do we want to start? What do we want to dive into first? So I wanted to talk about, um, that a critical role that SLPs play in a simple phrase that we use that I think we take for granted a lot of times. Yes. We have the privilege and I do see it as a privilege to write SLP recommends at the end of most all of our notes every day. Right. Yep. And I'll take you back to even when I was in the skilled nursing facility, when I wrote that, I'm not ashamed to say that I was one of those SLPs that back up in the time that I wrote, would write SLP recommends. And I probably would get upset if someone didn't follow those guidelines, Yeah. especially when it came to swallowing, you know, so yeah. we'd say, oh, I'm going to put this patient on a minced and moist diet with nectar thick liquids. And three days later, you hear that they don't want that. They want their thin liquids. And here I was, this young new therapist stomping around my facility. Yep, yep. yep. This is what you have to have. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, and like I said, I'm not ashamed to admit that. I've grown from there, obviously. Um, but I think that sometimes, because we don't always get that in grad school, that that is a privilege and it's very important, that that's not even what that is about. Mm -hmm. It's not about, you know, your recommendations we need to think about how that ties into discharge planning. Um, I am a firm believer that, especially in the acute care, that discharge planning starts from day one. And so that's something that I tell my family members. When you admit to the hospital, I know that you see your loved one in a critical state, but I don't want you to think that this is your home, that this is your forever place. And I don't want you to get comfortable in thinking you may even have 14 days to be here, you know? We move very fast. And once they're stable, they're going to be on to their next level of care. And so with that comes a responsibility of let's talk about discharge plans. Let's talk about some recommendations. Um, also with that, we tend to think that when we're writing SLP recommends, 
it stays within those walls and it's confined within whatever setting you're in. So SLP recommends XYZ for the nursing home or SLP recommends XYZ for acute care. And we need to shift our mindsets and remember that when we're writing that, this is for their next level of care. You know, it's what are we wanting these patients to have and what we want to be established when they leave here because they're no longer under our umbrella or under our wings where we can kind of protect them a little bit. Yeah. One of the things that I'm finding, I do a lot of training with CFYs and students. And so one of the things that I'm finding, um, if we were to break it down into two areas, so normally we group things into swallowing, and then we also have like our speech and our communication. And so if we could start with like the swallowing, I think that's probably the easier place to go with. Um, when we write that SLP recommends, if it's a normal patient, typically we just say SLP recommends, you know, a regular diet, thin liquids, no further services needed at the acute care. And so that's okay. But what about those incidences where our patients are struggling and they're having a little bit of trouble? I think when we immediately put someone on a diet, so we'll use like the example of minced and moist and nectar thick liquids, most people tend to think, oh, they're on a diet, they're all better. Like speech doesn't need to see them anymore. And just because I approved for someone to have a diet with those recommendations doesn't mean that they still don't have a dysphagia that I can still help to improve. And so we need to think about, okay, so when I'm saying SLP recommends, what else do I want my staff, the person that's reading my note, what else do I want them to know? What else do I want them to carry on? And then if we advance that a bit further, when we're talking about discharging, what is my patient going to need when they discharge my facility? So we need to remember to write in those things. Maybe they may need a suction. Maybe they're on a diet, but they can't handle excess secretions or things like that. So maybe they need to have a portable suction at home with them. Or maybe if they're on a modified diet, they're doing well. But what if they're going home with an elderly caregiver? Are they still going to need some support groups? And Mm -hmm. so that's okay for us to think about writing. SLP recommends discharged home on a modified diet with continued support group services. So that a loved one can, you know, call in or phone in or meet with a, another group of population of patients that may have dysphagia and still continue to grow from there. Because a yeah. lot of times when our patients leave our facilities, they're not getting any other therapy. Mm-hmm. And in your heart, you know, they may need it and you don't want them to be at home struggling without it. Yeah. So I think those are very important things that we continue to recommend for them. Um, also, when they're discharging um, when I teach my dysphagia in services, I tell patients, we have these little boxes that we can send home in the speech department where we fill them up with, you know, the thickener, because when they go home, who has starch and who has thickener sitting around? And I have tons of patients that come back and they'll say, I really want, you know, my tequila or my, and, yeah. you know, they're not going to thicken that. Obviously, they don't have it. And so when we're writing those recommendations, same, same things. I usually like to go talk to my caseworkers and I'll tell them, hey, I have these little boxes that I can send home with the patient. So let me know when they're discharging and I'll get that box to them prior to them discharging. So we have it set up for them. But again, that's something that when you're writing your recommendations and you're doing your discharge planning that we need to think ahead and we need to be proactive in doing that. So send those patients home with whatever resources they have. And if your facility isn't equipped to do that, then that's fine. Another idea that I would throw out there is have a printed list of resources for them. So with that, if they're going to go to a thick and liquid diet or a modified food, maybe provide them with a handout that says, well, these are some companies that are available for you so that when you do leave my facility, you can look into that and research that. With that being said, too, a lot of times we have a lot of unfunded patients in my building. So that's I think that's where this topic really brewed for with me, because we don't think, well, 
okay, I've made this this recommend recommendation for SLP recommends NPO with a PEG tube. But then do we think ahead? If that patient's unfunded, yeah. who's going to supply that formula for them? Who's yeah. going to supply the pole that the, you know, the formula needs to hang from? Who's going to supply all the extra care that comes along with that? And then if the family can't pull those resources together, what happens with that patient? Do they just advance their diet themselves? And then that's where you have the readmissions into the hospitals. So that's another area where I think that we could do a better job in what we're recommending and then setting up that discharge with them. Um, I think looking into state and local resources that are available in your area, there are tons of resources available for patients that are unfunded that you can reach out to. Um, I don't know if I can say any, but I know there's like yeah, Nestle, yeah. okay, yeah. like Nestle and the Oleg Foundation. They actually have applications where you can fill out and go onto the websites and they'll actually send you more information and or they have donation groups um, where you can get the, you know, the formula that you may need or the pegs that you may need um, to help so that your loved one doesn't have to struggle or we're not putting them at risk. And so that's just that extra step that we need to go above and beyond and writing those things in our notes, because a lot of people aren't aware of that. Yeah. Um, I, I know a lot of times we talk to our caseworkers and our social workers in our building. Um, and so I'm a, also another big the end of that phrase, don't pass the buck. And so I think a lot of times we say, oh, okay, well, this is what this patient is going to need. But if you haven't reached out to your caseworker or your social worker or just your team in general, do you know if they really know what the patient needs, you know? Yeah. And so going and stopping by that office and saying, hey, this is a resource that I think my patient can benefit from. You'd be surprised to know, oh, thank you so much. I didn't realize that this existed. Yeah. And so that's why I say I feel it's a very critical role that we have to put that under our umbrella and it's okay to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when we were in grad school, they taught us about, you know, our principles of ethics. And I'm going to read one of them um, kind of verbatim on how it's yeah. printed. Yeah. Um, so principle of ethics 1B actually says individuals shall use every resource, including referral and or interprofessional collaboration when appropriate to ensure that quality of services is provided. And I like that um, because, again, I don't think that we realize that making those recommendations and collaborating with other team members to make sure that our patients are getting what they need is always in our wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. I, again, a lot of times we're just like, Oh, okay, they're good. We're going to sign off or oh, okay. They need outpatient services. Oh, okay. They need, you know, this and that, but knowing it's okay to say, well, this is where I think you should go next. That's yeah. something that we need to do a better job at. So that's my swallowing take. My, my other passion um, is with the speech and the cognition that's a, a big one that I'm sitting on right now. We get those recommendations to see those patients. And as I said before, it's very easy to, to have your normal or what looks normal. And so it's an easy sign off, right? But we're talking about those patients that really do need ongoing services and that will need ongoing services outside of the facility that you're in. And so when we're writing SLP recommends and we're thinking about the discharge recommendations that those patients need, Let's say we had, I'll give you a scenario. Let's say we had a 17-year-old patient that came in with a TBI. And so I am noticing he has some attention deficits. I am noticing that the lights are bothering him for a sustained period of time. I'm noticing that his insight and his reasoning, all those things are impacted. And so for me, when I'm writing my recommendations, 
And when I'm writing my goals, I'm not saying, oh, this patient will sustain attention for five minutes or he will, you know, sustain divided attention for five minutes. I'm thinking about my patient's 17. My patient hasn't graduated high school in most cases, and he has to go back to school. And so those are what my recommendations are geared towards. I'm thinking I need the doctor to actually write me a prescription so that when my patient discharges my hospital and returns back to his school year, that the teachers, the staff, the principals, the counselors know how to help this patient succeed now that he's post-TBI. And so that's an area that I really try to work with my trauma team with when we get a lot of traumas at the facility. And so I try to get them to understand, yes, this is what they're, they're ready to discharge from my facility, but he has to go back to work. He has to go back to home. And I need you to write me a prescription stating that this patient may need extra time on his test. This patient may need um, breaks away from a test or breaks away from a sustained task. If a class lasts for 45 minutes, the teacher needs to know, hey, give him a break maybe every 20 minutes, you know, let him clear his thoughts, let him clear his mind. Or if he can't um, maintain attention, we're reading black and white for a sustained period of time. He may need those little breaks to just walk around, get his eyes refocused before he goes back. But, you know, you can't as a 17 year old, you wouldn't know how to voice that for yourself. You wouldn't know how to explain that to your teacher in a manner where they really get what TBI is. And so we do need to collaborate with those physicians so that it's an order. It's an order that the patient can go back to school or same with work for someone that maybe is a bank teller or someone that deals with machinery. Maybe they can return back to doing their job, but what are those things that we need to be asking our physicians to help us out with so that things kind of get put back into writing on our behalf so that they can continue to be successful? Yeah. Also, when we're doing our evaluations, um, I think it's really important that we are thinking about a more family-centered approach. Mm -hmm. I know that we're always thinking about the patient. This is what the patient wants. These are the goals for my patients. And so that's how we establish our goals. But we also need to think about who's this patient going to be discharging home to and with, and what's the burden that may be placed on that patient that's taking care of them. And so that's how we should be designing our goals. When we get those evaluations, we need to pull those family members and draw them into the rooms with us. The evaluation really isn't for the patient I've learning. The evaluation is more for me. Alicia, I want to like scream off the top of a like tower with you right now. I don't like, yeah, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Thank you. That eval is for us. It's just so that we can get information, right? So that we know how to help our patient. But if you have a patient that's breaking down and crying because they realize they didn't do the clock right, you know, if I did a clock drawing test, then I wouldn't continue to let them struggle. You know, I, I'd, I'd stop and empathize with them. But that evals for me. And so once I get my goals, I need to figure out what the family also needs and where that family sits with that patient. So if we had a patient that came in with a stroke and in your heart of hearts, you knew this was going to be a really bad stroke that may take a very long time for this patient to recover. Yeah. And that patient's going home with a spouse who also may be elderly or a little bit critical who's her support system? Yeah. Who Who is she going to have to help take care of him? And a lot of times, some of our population, it's just the two, or maybe a daughter or a son that's been a little bit more estranged. They're not with their loved one or their family member. Um, and so they haven't been with them. And so 
those roles look differently. If if you were very close to your parents, then that level of care might be different. You know, you're willing to take off time from work and find a sitter for your kids to help get mom and dad rehabilitated. But when you're estranged, it's not that you won't be there is what I'm seeing, but just not, it's on a different level. Yeah. And so we need to figure out who's going to be a part of this caregiving team for these patients and again, that's how we're writing our, our recommendations. That's how we're writing and thinking about our discharge um, planning. Because just as I said, as you want to have a support group for those dysphagia patients, there's support groups that we can offer to loved ones that are caring for their loved ones. There are respite care um, facilities where we can remind them because not everybody I'm learning will just offer that information if they don't know it. Yeah. And so those are things that we should be saying in our sessions. Hey, I know you're going to take your husband home, but just know that it's okay that if you need a break, here's yeah. something that's available for you because what happens when she tires out, right? Yeah. So yeah. now you have two people that can't care for themselves. And so you want a support group for them. Um, when I'm making my recommendations for that group of patients, I'm also thinking about the H -E -P, the H um, the DME equipment, sorry, the durable metal equipment that's involved. Um, again, that's not something that not everyone thinks of. So I may need to tell my caseworkers and my social workers and the MDs, hey, this is the equipment that they're going to need before they go home. This is what I'm suspecting they're going to need when they go home. So I do have same thing. I have a list of resources that I usually provide. I'm kind of more of, I'd rather tell you, even if you don't need it type of person, yeah. rather than you have to call me back. Cause we do have that a lot too, where patients will call us back and they'll say, Hey, this is what's going on now. Can you refer me to, you know, X, Y, and Z. So kind of like if I get a patient that had a stroke and, and the area that I'm in, we have like an aphasia recovery group that they can attend. And so I just already have all that information printed out for them. And I pass that information along to them or like Parkinson groups. If I have a patient that has Parkinson's and maybe, you know, when we're getting them, they may not have any swallowing issues or any communication issues up front, but we also know some of those diseases, how they tend to progress. And so I just kind of give them the information and say, hey, this may be something you want to just visit a day or two, just so you have the information available if it comes to that. And I find that a lot of our patients and family members are more appreciative that they have it um, than not having it. Um, so that's something that I do a lot of. Um, as the we also try to educate them on um, resources as far as these are um, some sites that you can go to to continue your therapy. So again, we have a, a highly, highly, highly unfunded population. And so I know that when they come to me, I'm the last person they'll see that they'll probably get therapy from. And so we provide them with links for like YouTube or Lingraphica or, you know, different things where they can go and get these like free therapy services um, to continue their uh, their care. And so that's been very well received as well. But we have to just remember to write it in our notes. And so that's, I think, where the downfall is. We think all this stuff, we know all this stuff, and then we just don't do a great job about communicating it within our notes. And I'm guilty of that. It's always a work in progress, you know. Um, but those are some things that I think are very, very important that we need to consider when we're writing the word SLP recommends. It's not just a catchphrase, you know. It, it comes with a big responsibility. Yeah, yeah. 
Alicia, I'm like, just, I don't know. I'm blown away. I'm speechless. I'm all the things I like, you were just speaking to my soul right now on so many levels. I think I, I love everything that you're saying here. And, and for me, the biggest thing is, you know, I've, I've gone through so much with, with my son and working with different therapists and different specialists. And it's so, it's, it's interesting to see how different therapy or different specialists work. Right. And like how, how PT operates, how OT operates, how speech operates. And I always, I feel so positive. I feel like I have a much better outlook on things when the therapist provides all this support for not only him, but me also, mm-hmm. because I think, you know, like you said, it, it's, it's an interesting dichotomy because it is patient centered care, mm-hmm. but this, there's a very small majority of our patients that actually go home completely independent without relying on support from family, caregivers, parents, children, siblings, just external caregivers, all the things, you know, and what are we doing to foster that with, with our patients? You know, so I I think it's interesting that I, I, by all means love this patient centered care approach, but I also think there's so much to be said about this, the family or the caregiver dynamic approach that needs to be addressed too, because that's really what helps to get this patient independent in the long run or what helps to, you know, get them rehabs back to their prior level of functioning in the long run. Um, I I just love everything that you said so much. And I don't think there's enough of an emphasis on there. I don't think it's, it's not something that we're naturally taught. I think exactly what you said, it's sort of very laser focused in that, okay, we have patient A in front of us. This is what we see during the eval. This is what we're going to treat. This is what we're going to recommend. Okay, goodbye. And that's it. And we, and, and there's nothing wrong with being one track minded in that aspect, but we have, there's so many other external factors we have to consider. Um, And I appreciate that you brought that up so much because I just, it's, it's something that we don't talk about enough. And as, as being a parent of my son, I always appreciate that when other therapists, you know, provide other resources or, you know, because it's, it's interesting. It might not be today. It might not be tomorrow, but like, uh, like just now I actually was reading some recommendations that a PT had left for my son. I think it was like last December mm-hmm. and it's just all of a sudden now we're needing that extra support. And so I'm so glad that she, you know, wrote out this whole binder, this whole folder of all these things yeah. that we need to consider in the future. And yeah. I'm so grateful for that. And I will remember yeah. that therapist as someone that truly cared about not just helping my son, but helping our family as a, as yeah. a unit. So yeah, yeah. I, That's very important. Very yeah. important. Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate everything you said so, so much. And I, yeah, I, I, you're, yeah, I love this. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that, you know, you mentioned, I know that, um, it goes, it applies for the NICU setting as well. Um, I, I, I do have the opportunity to go to the NICU, um, in my facility. And so the demographic at my facility is heavy on Spanish speaking patients and so, um, and a lot of them are on WIC services, Medicaid services, things like that. Yeah. So just being aware, you know, being aware of the different types of funding, the different things that are available for those patients in that population group and the same thing, like providing it in their native language so that they understand what's going on. Yeah. Um, in our NICU, I like what you just said that what the physical therapist did with like the binder and having the recommendations. A lot of times when I'm making recommendations for my patients, we tend to, or I think I'll speak for myself, I was trained 
to think of one set of recommendations. So SLP recommends, but I'm finding that I tend to write a primary set of recommendations and then a secondary set of recommendations, right? I think that's what I was trying to say. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. So I do that a lot for my swallowing patients, but it could go for any, you know, any type of patient. And I think in planning ahead, like you said, so I may give you this set of recommendations because this is what you look like today. And this is what you look like today and last week. But I know that next week, this is how you're going to present. So let me give you that set of recommendations for what you're going to do when this happens. And so I do that a lot with the adults for my trach population a lot. Again, we get a lot of patients that may come in and they're not quite tolerating that passing mirror valve before they discharge. And so, hey, I need you. I call them. I need you to come into the hospital. I really want to show you how to do this passing mirror valve. I want to show you how to just do digital finger occlusion. I don't want you to get home and not be able to use it because you don't have a speech pathologist following you. But let me show you what to do. Let me show you what to look for so that your loved one can progress a little bit. Um, And so that's what that second set of recommendation looks like. Yes, they can't wear this passing mirror valve right now, but hey, if you see X, Y, and Z, this is what I want you to do. And it's okay for us to do that. It's, you know, it's not a black and white area the way that we want it to fit into that little box all the time. Yeah. I just, I love everything you said. Let me, let me play devil's advocate a minute here. What would you say to someone who says like, that's not our role or that's not our place, or I don't know how they're going to present in a few weeks or a few months or a few years? So I like that question um, because I do devil's advocate a lot. (laughs) And I think that's what's grown me to practice, I guess, the way I practice. So I follow your, um, I follow a lot of speech therapy forums. I'm kind of, I don't know, a spider on the wall. I don't comment a lot, but I do like to go in and roll, go in and read and see what's going on and how other therapists are practicing and how they're thinking. And so what you said is what I see a lot. A lot of people will say, well, this is not our scope. This is not our role. But I don't know. For me, I find if I'm not causing harm to a patient, yes. why isn't it my role? And whose yeah. role is it? Right. In, in reality, whose whose role is it? Who's going to step up and say, hey, I noticed this was going on with this patient and I want to be the one to help them. I'm not saying I'm going to fix your problem, but I want to be a stepping stone and I want to help you. And this is what I know. This is the skill set that I have. This is an article that I've read and I know it's tried and true. So why wouldn't Mm -hmm. I be the one to initiate that change or make that will happen for you? Um, I took a documentation course um, back when I was in a skilled nursing facility And I I can't remember, I'm pretty sure it was corporate mandated that we had to take this course. But my takeaway at the time was you should always be able to find one goal to be able to help a patient achieve. And at the time for that facility, this is when rug levels was, you know, high in demand. And and so, (laughs) so, you know, there's that part of you as a therapist that's like, okay, well, you want me to find a goal so I can get this patient on caseload. But the more I practice, the more I really believe if I have a patient that I've identified a deficit, why can't I have a goal to work on? And I don't think there's any goal bank that I've ever Googled that says that you can't make a goal for just about anything, you know, like, and so I, I, I find if I think it's something that's productive, I think it's something that's going to benefit the quality of life for my patient and you know, their immediate 
whether they're working or they're retired and just at home and gardening with their wife or, you know, their spouse, if there's a goal that I can restore that quality of life for them, why wouldn't I make that a goal? Um, So that's kind of how I sit with it's I've I've not, like I said, I'm never going to cause any harm to a patient. Um, but I don't see that there's a reason to say that it isn't within our scope. Our scope yeah. is to help our yeah. patient. Yeah. You know? Yep. I, I, I agree. I, I love that so much. I, I, it's interesting just how your perspective changes with different, you know, experiences you've had in your life. And I think I sort of got into that, like I got hyper-focused on like dysphagia and the, and, you know, the evaluation and the treatment of it and just very, almost like rigid and regimented with like almost robotic, like, okay, if Mm -hmm. I see this, this is what we're going to do. And then my whole world was shaken up when I had my son and Mm -hmm. I realized there's so much more to this family centered approach and interdisciplinary approach and bringing in so many other, you know, professionals. And from there, I just, I've learned so much more. Like there's just so much to learn from our colleagues and, and in this family centered approach. And I, I do, I do want to touch on one thing because, oh, and you actually have it in your notes here too, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about your dynamic with your social worker. What's interesting is I, I worked at a facility years ago and it was, he was the most amazing social worker. He wanted to know so much about SLP and, and how, what he could offer the the patients. And it was just, it was so wonderful. And then I had a conversation with someone last week and they were like, the social worker is terrible at our facility. I was like, well, what can you do? Like, can you step in and, and sort of fill that role? And And so it's so interesting that we're having this conversation now because I, can't wait for her to listen to this episode because I feel like it's going to be really valuable to her. So um, yeah, I would, I would love to hear about your, your working dynamic with a social worker. Yeah. So my dynamics with my, I'm going to start, um, I'm going to start backwards. My dynamic yeah. with my social workers has kind of been a roller coaster event. Yeah. So in the skilled nursing facility, we had social workers and I loved them. I loved my social workers. If there was anything I needed for my patients to have during their stay or even upon discharge, I felt like they were on it. They made it happen. Um, no questions, no qualms. Um, and then I worked with some caseworkers, um, and a combination of social workers that overseeded them. And it changed a little bit because I could remember a few times where I was told, well, that's not within, like you said, that's not within my role. That's not what caseworkers do. And so I was taken aback because I guess I didn't understand that. Like, but, but you're doing the same thing. It's just a title change, you know? Um, and so I didn't really understand that. Um, and so it took some time to do the education. It wasn't until I believe I was in an out the LTAC facility that I was in. And that's when I really started trying to learn what they do and trying to help them. I find that when you have the opportunity to help each other and lend a hand in getting information that they may need, then they're a little bit more willing to see it out of your lens as well to see what you need. And so in the LTAC facility, a lot of times we would get patients that had already had a modified barium swallow study completed. And so I didn't want to repeat it if they had just had it the next day. And so in the LTAC facility, it was very hard to get speech notes. Everybody sends physical therapy notes. Everybody sends occupational therapy notes, but no one gets the speech notes or the modifieds. You would just get the note from the radiologist that just had that one blurb, right? And so that does me no good. So I had to go learn how to communicate with my caseworkers and say, hey, when I called this facility, they were going to shoot me through medical records. I have to get the family members to sign a waiver to say I can get these records. 
can we start including that in the packet of information that you're requesting for them to come along so that I can get the speech pathology report? When they realized I was actually saving the company a little bit of money by getting the report so I didn't have to do it, I, that's when I noticed our relationship kind of blossomed. Um, and then that's at that facility. And then I also hit a bump in the road. I think where our relationship grew, I hit a bump in the road. There was a period of time where I was being told that if I was recommending my patients to be NPO, nothing by mouth, um, and they had a peg tube that I couldn't do quote unquote, what we would call pleasure feeds that they couldn't have a diet and the peg tube too, because Medicare wouldn't pay for it. And so I thought, and so they were almost telling me I couldn't see these patients. Basically, it's like you can't you can't document that they're eating because then they can't get their formula paid for. And I thought you don't understand what a speech language pathologist is and what ninety percent of my caseload is, do you? Yeah. And so they were willing to sit down and listen and explain. And we called in um, a lot of the team, the dietitians, and explained. And so even I had to learn, well, let me word it this way. Let me make sure I'm saying that this isn't their main source of nutrition. Right. Um, and I was documenting how much they were taking in by mouth, you know, only five or six bites at this time. It's not a full meal. And so I think once we all sat down at a table and actually really defined what that role was, that's how the relationship grew where I am now, um, I make it my business to stop by the caseworkers and the social workers office. Um, usually, um, I think everybody can probably relate. We have patients that we call walkie talkies, right? So they come in, they look good, they're up walking, but I know that this patient's not safe to go home. PTOT yeah. have signed off on them, but this patient wouldn't know, you know, if he's writing a checkbook and he was supposed to write a check for $100, but he actually just wrote that check for $1,000 would have no idea, you know? Yeah. And so I started making it my business to stop by. Um, we have caseworkers on offices on every floor of my hospital. Mm -hmm. And so I would stop by their office at the end of my assessments. And I'd say, Hey, I know PT and OT signed off. I know they're ambulating. I know they can go home, but this person's really going to need home health services. And he's really going to need intensive outpatient speech therapy services and actually explaining that to them. And they were very receptive to that. Um, also going to rounds, if you have the opportunity to attend multidisciplinary rounds and actually understanding what they understand. And I'll give you a quick example. I was at stroke rounds, at, uh, we'll say maybe last month, I attended stroke, I attend stroke rounds in the um, patient uh, in particular was going to be, he needed rehab, but the physical therapy team had said that he was ambulating maybe 25 feet. My caseworker heard that word ambulation and said, oh, he can go home. And this was a patient that was coming from like a two-story home, bathroom in the back of the house. Yeah. And we all kind of chimed in, no, he still needs rehab. Like, 25 feet is enough to get him maybe to the front door, but not to the bathroom and back to his bedroom without deciding, without having a trip or a fall or a stumble, you know, all those things that go along with it. And so I think being able to go to those rounds and actually understanding what they understand about a therapist role yes. helps that relationship grow. That's a, that's a money shot right there. What you just said. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And then something else, uh, uh, I emailed Asha 
um, probably about a month ago as well, too. So our documentation system at my hospital, they were they would like for us not to write where the patient should discharge to. They would like, like us to just say post-acute services. Yeah. And so a lot of therapists kind of had, you know, some hiccups about that. Like we want to be able to say where we think they should benefit. Yeah. Um, and so I emailed Asha just to ask that question, like, can anybody, um, for lack of a better word, tell me <laughs> that I can't be specific about where I'm wanting my patient to go to. And, you know, we all get answers that we like and then answers that we don't like. Right. So when she, when Asha emailed me back, it's not that she didn't give me an answer that I didn't like, but it's just, I didn't get the, no, they can't tell you that. So, um, but what she said to me also is something that sits, sits, you know, that I think about, she said, well, when you're writing your recommendations and when you're writing your goals, your team should be able to figure out from your goal what the next level of care should be. So if I am saying that my patient is choking, even though maybe I put them on a diet, but maybe it's more of an impulsivity impulsivity Mm -hmm. issue or, you know, maybe they can go home, but like I said, maybe they can't balance their checkbooks and things like that. Maybe they need that extra set of eyes and supervision. From my goals, my team should be able to say, oh, OK, they are going to need supervision or they are going to need one on one or maybe they do need to just go to an assistive living facility versus home. And so I think it's up to up to the therapist to explain to your caseworkers and your social workers when I'm writing these goals, this is what I mean. Yeah. Because they don't understand our world and I don't care how much you want them to. Yeah they're not going to understand your lens is different. My lens is different from your lens. And, you know, they're looking at, even though we're looking at the same patient, we're standing in front of the same patient and we see physically the same patient, what I'm processing in my head is completely different from how they see that patient and how they're processing that. And so the only way that relationship grows is if we spend time talking to them and telling them. Yeah. Um, sometimes it helps to, my supervisor tends to tell me that I'm very long-winded So um, instead of me writing newsletters and long emails all the time, sometimes I just send out quick blasts. And so I'll send out a blast and I'll say, hey, speech tip for today. And it'll say, you know, whatever. And so it'll be just to the caseworkers or just to the social workers. So that sticks in their head. Oh, yeah. Last month, Alicia said this or last month, Alicia said that. And I think that helps to grow that relationship. Yeah. I love all of this, Alicia. This is wonderful. Thank you so much. This is so valuable. Thank you. I I love what you just said about my lens is different than your lens. I think there's so much to be said there about, you know, so many areas of our field that we work in. So thank you so much for sharing all of this. This is so, so helpful. Thank you. Um, I appreciate it. Anything else you want to add? Any, any final thoughts? I, this is, I'm not supposed to say this, but this is like one of my most favorite episodes, because I think this is just something that you don't we don't talk about as much as we should, you know, in, in grad school and just in continuing education. And, and it's not even, you know, it's one of those things they would quote unquote call like a soft skill, but I think this mm-hmm. is something that's beyond valuable, like yeah, should sure. not even be considered something like that. So yeah. thank you so much. You're welcome. Any final thoughts? I just asked you for final thoughts oh. and, started, and then I started blabbing <laughs> oh. more. So. <laughs> now my final thought would just be to encourage everybody to continue to grow. Growing doesn't stop. Um, when I first started, out as an SLP, I went hardcore on CUs, but it was the, always the big ones, you know, like, and I don't even want to throw out the ones that I have certifications for, because it's kind of considered that dinosaur age. But um, like, I always went for these big certifications, I want to do this, and I want to do that. 
And I think along the way I got a little lost and I forgot about the little ones, you know? And so now it's crazy because I come home in the afternoons after work and I tend to my family and then I just want to log onto a laptop and take all these CUs and learn as much as I can learn. Right. And so I think we just need to be very mindful of that. I don't care what setting you're in medicine changes, people change, research changes, And so we need to not just say, okay, I learned this and I went to this CU. And so I'm set. Mm -hmm. I feel like if you ever feel like you get to a place where you're like, I got this, like, I know what I need to know. And you become complacent. You need to really look in the mirror. And I'm saying this because I've had to do it to myself. At the beginning of the interview, you asked me, did I always know that I wanted to be in acute care? And just to round it up, I, I did. But then there was a place that I could remember saying, oh, this is all that it is being in acute care. And it's it's really, did I just say that out loud yeah. kind of feeling, you know? Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, yeah. like, I need to look in the mirror. If I'm feeling like this was it and I mastered it, then there's a problem because yeah. it continues to change, it continues to grow. And so you should never stop learning. And so I think when I hit that point where I was just like, oh, this is what I haven't been doing. And this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. My happiness went up. My patient quality scores, you know, I could see the progress and the potential in how I'm improving my patient's lives. That's when I was like, okay, I got it now. I got it. I'm, I'm always going to be a learner, you know? Yeah. So I, I think if you ever feel that way, then that's just an opportunity for you to just kind of self-reflect. Awesome. Awesome. I love this so much, Alicia. I can't thank you. I just want to reach through and hug you because I love this so much. <laughs> thank you. I don't know if you're a hugger, but I just, you know, I anyways, thank you. Thank you so much. I can't, I can't thank you enough for this conversation. And, and I just hope that a lot of people found this really valuable. I think this was really, really helpful to our field. So thank you for your contributions. Thank you, Teresa. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.